For the last few weeks, we have been looking at the book of Zechariah. This is a book addressed to people with a big job to do. Actually, a daunting task has been given to them. These are people who have just returned or recently returned to Israel after many years spent away from Israel in exile in various places. And these returned exiles have been commissioned by God to rebuild Jerusalem. But they are a people who are demoralized and distracted. And the aim of this book is to fill these downtrodden men and women with confidence. The aim is to get them building with confidence. But the way Zechariah goes about that is pretty striking. At no point in this book do we find God talking up the people of Israel. He makes no attempt to get these people to feel good about themselves or be confident in their own ability or reliability. This book is working to make these demoralized people feel good about God and to be filled with confidence in His ability and reliability. As God's people, our only true source of confidence is our knowledge of God, who He is and what He does. And so our confidence will grow as our knowledge of God grows. This book is working to strengthen our confidence in God so that we will persevere in the kingdom-building work He has given us. And this morning we come to chapters 4 and 5, chapters that emphasize for us that our confidence is in the Lord. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find this passage in page 951. I'll begin by reading chapters 4 and 5. This is in the middle of a series of visions which the Lord is giving to Zechariah. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it, with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? 
Again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up and see what is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. This is God's word. The first message of these chapters is that God builds. And the second is that God saves. So first, in chapter 4, God builds. The angel who has been guiding Zechariah through the visions returns to him. He asks Zechariah what he can see, and Zechariah says in verse 2, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? What Zechariah sees, according to his description, is something like this. This kind of lampstand is known as a menorah. And what Zechariah sees in his vision has been described as a super menorah. And there's an olive tree standing on either side of it. And when Zechariah asks what it means, the angel does answer his question, but he doesn't answer it directly. And so we're going to have to come back to our menorah later. What the angel does is he starts talking about the building project, specifically the temple that is to be at the heart of the city. In verse 6, He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. 
And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. The task in front of the people was to build the temple. And the angel is explaining here how that is going to happen. Last week in chapter 3, we were introduced to the historical figure of Joshua the high priest. And now we hear about a second historical figure, this man, Zerubbabel. Now together, Joshua and Zerubbabel were the two most important people in Israel at this time. Joshua was the high priest, so he was the religious leader, and Zerubbabel was the governor, the civic leader of the people. And he was actually a descendant of David's royal line, although he wasn't a king. And just as Sebastian Coe had the job of overseeing the organization of the Olympics last year, Zerubbabel has the job of overseeing this rebuilding project. But whereas Sebastian Coe had a budget of billions and could call on unlimited expertise and help to get the job done, Zerubbabel basically has no budget. And his workforce is a bunch of ragged men and women who are trying to eke out a living for themselves. And they don't have much energy left for temple building work. I'm sure Lord Coe felt pretty daunted by his task. But as Zerubbabel considers his task, it feels to him like his path is blocked by a mighty mountain. And no doubt there was an actual mountain of rubble that had to be cleared before the building could even begin. But there was also a mighty mountain of opposition standing in Zerubbabel's way. There were enemies who directly opposed the rebuilding project. And there were also skeptics and naysayers who were undermining the work with their defeatist attitude. When Zerubbabel looked at the mountain in front of him, and when he looked at the meager resources he had, it must have seemed to him an impossible task. How was it going to get done? We'll look again at God's words to him in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God is saying to this leader, you won't overcome these obstacles through human resources or skill. You won't get the job done by your own efficiency or excellence. Even if you had the biggest budget, Zerubbabel, and the most gifted workers, this job is beyond natural human strength and power. It will only get done by my power. By my power, God says, the mighty mountain standing in the way will be reduced to level ground. And by my power, the temple building will rise and be completed. Now, in verse 7, there is some uncertainty about this word that's translated capstone. 
Some scholars think it's referring to the first foundation stone that was laid. And some think it's the final stone that completes the work. That's how the NIV has taken it, by translating it as capstone. But either way, the point really is the same. The work will get done by God's power, not by human ability. And the shouts of the people in verse 7 are literally grace, grace. In other words, from start to finish, this work can only be attributed to God's grace. That's how the job will get done. And that is the thing then that should be celebrated. The odds against this work are so great, only God can do it. And at the same time, the angel's words make it equally clear that God does work through human beings. God's spirit gives strength to the hands and wisdom to the minds of human beings. In verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Zerubbabel here represents the work of all of God's people, laying the initial foundation stone and the final capstone. Those were ceremonies. They marked the beginning and the end of the work officially. In reality, many hands and many brains had been involved in the work, not just Zerubbabel. Well, at this point, we're in a position to understand the initial vision Zechariah had seen. The lampstand with the olive tree on either side. Earlier, I said the angel had explained this vision indirectly to Zechariah. He responded to the question about the vision by talking about the building of the temple. And in fact, in Israel's history, both the tabernacle tent and then the temple had contained lampstands very similar to the one in this vision. The lampstand and its light symbolized that this was God's place. This was where God lived. So it's clear the lampstand in the vision represents the temple that is going to be built. Now by this point, Zechariah has got that part. But he still needs help understanding the two olive trees. So, in verse 11, Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. These verses give us an extra detail about the vision. We learn that the trees are connected to the lampstand by two pipes. And apparently the lampstand is being fueled by golden oil that flows from the olive trees through the pipes. Now this kind of lamp would normally run on olive oil. But the key point here, and Zechariah's key question is about the source of the oil, the two trees. What do they represent? Well, in verse 14, the angel says, according to the NIV, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. 
Actually, a better translation would be, these are the two who bring oil and stand before the Lord of all the earth. So it seems these olive trees represent unnamed heavenly beings. Heavenly beings who are in God's presence. And they fuel the building work with a constant supply of God's Holy Spirit, represented by the oil. And I should add that some people have wondered if the trees might represent Joshua and Zerubbabel. And that's a possibility. But it seems much better to take them as heavenly beings who are supplying Joshua and Zerubbabel and every other worker. After all, Joshua and Zerubbabel are receiving the Spirit. They're not dishing it out. Now, with that picture in our minds, there is a fairly obvious application here. We saw last week that the New Testament refers to the church of Jesus Christ as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the historical city of Jerusalem was a picture of the actual heavenly Jerusalem, the church. And the New Testament also tells us the historical temple in Jerusalem was a picture of the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? In 2 Corinthians, he writes, we are the temple of the living God. In Ephesians, he says to Christians, in Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And finally, Peter writes to the church, you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So the obvious application is this. As God's people today, we are called to build a temple made of living stones, men and women who belong to Jesus Christ. And we will not accomplish this work by our own power or wisdom. The work will be done by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And we can call on a constant supply of the Spirit. Now, I imagine that's clear to all of us. I'm sure we would all agree we can't accomplish it in our own power. But there is another element to this. It's the fact that very often the work does not appear to be getting done. The obstacles seem to be stubbornly holding their ground. The mighty mountains we face do not appear to be getting turned into level ground. Practical difficulties, opposition, unbelief, skepticism, all of those things seem to be thriving, not being overcome. That was certainly the case in Zerubbabel's day. The foundation stone of the temple had been laid some time before this message from Zechariah. The problem was, there seemed to be little or no progress. And God highlights this when he says in verse 10, who dares despise the day of small things? The reality was there were no great leaps forward taking place in Jerusalem. 
Any progress that there was was slow, and it seemed to be inconsequential. It was a day of small things. And there were many people who were just fed up with it. As far as they were concerned, it was all very well talking about God's Spirit getting the work done. But by all appearances, he wasn't getting the work done. And their reaction was either to give the whole project up as a lost cause, or to return to putting their hope in human skill and human strength. These people were looking for spectacular results. And if these small things were all that the Spirit was going to produce, well, they just didn't have the patience for that. So this vision really is as much a rebuke as it is a promise. God is at work, but some of his people are despising his work because it seems small and insignificant. And I think this is where the application gets a bit more pointed for us. It's easy for us to start thinking that if dozens of people aren't being converted, if our lives are not being stacked with blessings, family blessings, material blessings, health blessings, if those things aren't happening, then God has forgotten us or he hasn't kept his promise to build. It's easy to look around and think, well, where's the golden oil now? Where's the divine mountain flattener today? Where's the Spirit's power? How is God building today? And once we start asking those questions, we can be tempted to give up in despair or to slide into cynicism, which is just as bad as giving up. Or we can quietly decide that we're going to have to get by without God's supply. We're going to have to find a way to build. And once we take on that mindset, we start chasing after the latest silver bullet, the latest method that promises big results. Maybe we look at big, prospering churches and we try to copy them. Or maybe we look at successful businesses and we try to copy them. But once we start down that road, we inevitably end up focusing on things we have not been called to focus on. Marketing, selling the church, high-powered performance to draw people to the church, presenting a message that's attractive and inoffensive and therapeutic. We end up neglecting the simple things that God has called us to do listening carefully to his word, obeying his word, showing our dependence on him through prayer, loving and serving others, sharing the message of Jesus with others. Being faithful in those things will not always bring explosive, impressive results. And so we can be tempted to despise those things but those things are the characteristics of people whose confidence is in the Lord. 
Those are the characteristics of a church that knows, not just says it knows, but really knows that the church is not built by human might or power. It's built by God's Holy Spirit. Listening and obeying God's word together, praying together, service, sharing the good news. Those things are characteristic of the church that even in the day of small things trusts this promise of Jesus. The promise that says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is not building to our schedule, but he is building. And even in this day of small things that we live in, it is our responsibility to trust him and be faithful in what he has called us to do. So far, we've been talking about building. And now Zechariah reminds us that God's true temple is built through the salvation of men and women. Chapter 5 teaches us that God saves. The two visions in chapter 5 are very closely connected. First of all, look at the vision of the flying scroll in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Let me just remind you of it again. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. The flying scroll, the standard that condemns. Last week I read an interview with Phil Jackson. That may not be a name that's familiar to you. Phil Jackson is one of the most successful coaches in basketball. And it turns out, I discovered, he's also a religious man. And he describes his belief system as a mixture of Christianity, Zen Buddhism, and Native American beliefs. And Phil Jackson's approach is very popular today. You take a bit that you like from one religious heritage, you mix it in with bits from a few others, and you create your own unique blend of religion. It's a way of having the reassurance that you're connected to ancient traditions, while at the same time making sure you're not actually under the authority of any of them. After all, you're just picking out the bits you like. When you make up your own religion, That religion has no power to hold you accountable. If you wake up tomorrow and don't like it, you can rewrite it. The Bible tells us that reality is very, very different. The message of the Bible is that we are all accountable to the God who made us. 
We can certainly choose to ignore his word. Or we can choose to treat it as a source that we draw from selectively. But sooner or later, we will be held accountable to it. And when that day comes, we will not be able to excuse ourselves by saying, well, my personal belief system only contains certain parts of your word. You can't hold me to all of it. What does this have to do with Zechariah's vision? Well, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us he saw a flying scroll. And in verse 2, we learn that it's a big scroll, more like a flying billboard. It's described in verse 3 as the curse that is going out over the whole land. And we learn that it has writing on both sides. We're given a couple of samples from that writing. One of them describes an offense against other humans, theft. And the other sample describes an offense against God, swearing falsely. Oaths were taken in God's name, so swearing falsely is a misuse of God's name. And those two samples seem to be indicating that the scroll contains the whole law of God. This law of God is big enough to be seen by all, and it's flying over the whole land, so nowhere is out of its reach. And it's a flying warning. Those who disobey it, we're told, will be banished. Or we could translate it cleared away, removed. Meaning, removed from the city that God is building. And we're told there will be no place to hide. Verse 4 says the sinner's house will be destroyed completely. So here's the picture. Sin cannot live where God is. God has set out his standard in his written word. And those who are measured against that word and found to be sinners will be removed, destroyed. So the obvious question is, what are the chances of passing the test of God's word? The New Testament tells us There is zero chance. The book of Romans says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whatever you and I might think of ourselves, however impressed or satisfied we might be with our performance, by the standard of God's word, every single one of us stands condemned as unholy. One day, God's holy city is going to fill the new heaven and earth. And all of us are in line to be removed to make way for that holy city. We don't belong in it. But that bleak vision of condemnation is followed by something very different. A vision of the basket of sin. The removal that delivers Again, let's remind ourselves of that vision. In verse 5, Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what is appearing. I asked, What is it? He replied, It is a basket. And he added, This is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. 
Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia, to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. If the flying scroll came to seek out and condemn the sinner, the basket comes to remove sin from the sinner. Verse 6 tells us that just as the scroll pronounced a curse over the whole land, the basket has collected sin throughout the land. The reason wickedness is symbolized as a woman in the basket is probably because many of the pagan idols were female figures. So maybe we're to think of a cross-legged idol sitting in the basket. There's certainly no indication that wickedness is an exclusively female trait. In a moment, we're going to meet two female servants of God. So the point is, even while the flying scroll is going through the land pronouncing its curse on sinners, the basket is going through the land gathering up sin from sinners. That sin is tightly sealed in the basket. And then the two women carry the basket off to the country of Babylonia. Literally, it says Shinar. Now, in the Bible, those two actual places are often used to symbolize the home of sin, the home of rebellion and cruelty and false worship. The message here is that sin is being taken from God's people and sent to the place where sin belongs, that house away from God's presence, away from the house that God is building. Instead of the sinner being banished or removed, Their sin is removed. What did this mean for the man or woman who first listened to Zechariah's message? Well, the book opened with a call for them to turn from their sin. And here God gives assurance that those who do will have their sin and guilt taken away from them. On the other hand, the vision of the scroll is equally clear. Those who cling to their sin will be removed along with their sin. They will not have a place in God's presence. They will be destroyed completely. And what does this mean for us? First of all, it means we can't have it both ways. We can't cling to our sin and still hope to enjoy God's presence. If we do cling to our sin, we will not enjoy fellowship with him either in this life or in the next life. If it was up to you and me to set the bar for acceptance with God, all of us would make it. We'd all set the bar just low enough so we could pass the test. Despite 
the selfishness and greed and pride that we love to cling on to. But we don't get to set the bar. It's already been set. And earlier we had the verdict that has been reached. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's word condemns all of us. Our only hope is to acknowledge our sin instead of excusing it and turn from it instead of clinging to it. And this passage tells us that God is our only hope. Only God can save. And the New Testament tells us this picture of sin being removed was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Galatians, Paul writes this. First, he quotes from the Old Testament. Cursed is anyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That sounds very like the vision of the flying scroll. But then Paul adds, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He did that by taking our sin on himself and being punished for it on the cross. The cross that, if you remember, stood outside the walls of God's city, Jerusalem. In the language of Zechariah 5, Jesus' body became the house for our sin. And our sin was destroyed in his body on the cross. Sin is never going to be ignored by God. No sin will ever slip under his radar. Either we choose to cling to our sin and be destroyed along with it, or we turn from our sin to Jesus. And our sin is removed from us. Because Jesus has already been punished for the sins of his people. Zechariah 4 told us that God builds. And maybe now we can see why. Only God can build his church because only God can save the men and women who make up his church. No amount of cleverness on our part can do that. When it comes to building the church, our confidence must be in God himself. That's the only kind of confidence that will keep us going. And there may be some of us here who need to put our confidence in God when it comes to our own salvation. Maybe you're still relying on yourself to pass the test and squeeze into heaven somehow. The Bible calls you to let go of that self-confidence and put your confidence in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, no one passes the test. And this passage is another final challenge for us. For those of us who have made a commitment to Jesus. Those of us who call him our Savior and Lord. Maybe some of us have to admit that we are still holding tightly to some sin. Our fingers are still curled around it. Maybe we would say we don't like the sin, 
but we don't really want to give it up either. It's dear to us. Older writers used to talk about darling sins. Juicy gossip. Some bitterness that we like to hold. Lust. Laziness. Greed. If you're in the position of clinging to some sin, not quite willing to let go of it, then you're still trying to have it both ways. Christ died to free us from our sin. We dare not keep on treasuring it and playing with it. It has to go in the basket. No matter how dear it is to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that through Jesus' work, the mighty mountain of our sin has been overcome. And we thank you that by your Spirit, even the mighty mountain of our love for our sin can be overcome. So we ask you, will you cause us to hate the sin that separates us from you and ruins our fellowship with you day to day? Help us to turn to you. Some of us, that will mean turning to you for the first time as we come and take Jesus as our Savior. And for others this morning, help us to return to you. Help us to let go of the sin that we treasure. And help us to welcome Jesus more fully as Lord of our lives. And for all of us, May our confidence be in you and only you. Help us to show our confidence by giving you our soul and our life and our all. Amen. We're going to respond to God's word by singing, What kind of